I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. In the New Testament, there's a letter called Hebrews with an unknown author. That author reminds disciples of Jesus facing troubling times something crucial about what it means to follow Jesus together. On this uh, a strange and surreal Sunday, obviously back at church in a, a strange and surreal time, Things are obviously not uh, business as usual, so I didn't want to treat them as though they were. Ordinarily on a Sunday, you guys remember it's been several months now, but the idea is I would unpack in detail, one line at a time, a passage from the Bible. That's kind of our uh, mode of operation. We did that in a sanctuary for years and years, and then we did it for a few months via videos and Zoom calls. This evening, I'm not going to offer a detailed line-by-line exegesis of the scripture. Instead, I have uh, something of an encouragement for this small scattered room, a kind of reminder for this strange and surreal occasion. The American civil religion that's often mistakenly labeled Christianity has a bad reputation. I don't have to tell you this. This civil religion, sometimes called Christendom, as kind of helpful differentiation, is less of a um, classic orthodox belief in Jesus, and it's more of a socio-political ideology. So it doesn't have really much or anything to do with learning the teachings of Jesus and putting them into practice. It's more of a static stance, if you know what I mean, meaning to paint with really broad strokes anyway. The difference is sort of this. For more than two millennia, the term Christian has been applied to men and women all over the world who hold a certain set of beliefs, or what we sometimes call creeds, to be true. We get them from a library of writings that we hold to be inspired by the Spirit of God, and thus trustworthy and authoritative to tell us stuff about God and about ourselves and about the world. But that's only part of it. The creeds, the belief is only part of it. In this library of writings that we believe is inspired by the Spirit of God, Belief is never purely intellectual, but in modern Western thinking, it is. Belief happens primarily in the mind. So use some debated thing as an example of the difference. In the film, this is the best one I could think of. In the film Groundhog Day, how long is Phil Connors trapped in the time loop? Some argue maybe eight or nine years. They're called short loop theorists, if you didn't know. Others, like myself, with the correct opinion, argue it was at least a century, if not much longer. They are long-loop theorists. Now, I believe this, and I believe it enough to argue about it, if you'd like to do that, but that belief doesn't really have a significant bearing on my practical decision-making prowess at all, uh, in the day-to-day sense, anyway. So it is with the American civil religion, or Christendom. It's marked by a basic belief in the existence of a god, what to call that god, a a superficial and very literal reading of some parts of the Bible, ignoring other parts altogether. But with the American civil religion, so-called belief in the man of history called Jesus does not typically compel lifelong devotion to the art of realizing his teachings in the world and putting them into practice. And that's not the case in the Bible. In the Bible, belief is always an active thing. It's always about lifestyle. It's never purely intellectual, and it's never inconsequential on the day-to-day decision-making process of your life. Inconsequential belief, on the other hand, allows the believer to act independent 
of what they claim to believe. You can have a kind of cognitive dissonance in the way that you behave and the things that you say you believe, creating a bizarro world in which those who claim the name of the one who came to serve and to sacrifice and to die for his enemies can now bulldoze other people, insisting on their own rightness and their superiority with a megaphone or with legislation or with military violence. And let us never forget that the American civil religion often feels like the ugly wallpaper of our cultural narrative is certainly very popular and well publicized. But we are here to do something else. And I remind us of this not uh, for a pat on the back, not to nurture a sense of quiet superiority, oh, we're so much better than them, but as a sober reminder, as a warning, we are not here for intellectual belief alone. We're not here, we're certainly not here for political ideology, we're not here for cultural relevance. If that were the case, I think we'd be in the wrong place. We are here to take these ancient creeds and empowered by that dearly held belief, learn the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice in our lives and in the world. The civil religion often seems like this loud, obnoxious powerhouse in the cultural landscape, which makes it easy for us to forget that though the actual way of Jesus has indeed proliferated amongst the entire world, Jesus said it would and it did, this thing called the church with a capital C has actually had a really hard time down throughout the centuries. And that's the story to which we belong. So if you have a Bible uh, on you or you have the app or whatever, go ahead and open to the book that we call Hebrews in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of contents. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is a really interesting letter because we don't know who wrote it. We don't know to whom they were writing exactly. It's obvious that the audience is made up of people who follow Jesus. That much is clear. The author assumes that they have this rich understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. So we think the author, whoever they are, is writing to Jewish Christians in the first century. Later in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the reader realizes that this group of Jewish Christians has, like many disciples of Jesus throughout the New Testament, they've begun to face persecution and they're getting locked up in prison. And this helps us make sense of the letter. For 10 chapters, the author has been using the story of Israel, the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, to explain and highlight the superiority and the trustworthiness of Messiah Jesus, which seems like a weird thing to do to a bunch of Jewish Christians because they already knew the Old Testament. They didn't need it explained to them, and they'd already come to faith in Jesus. They didn't need to be sold on Jesus either. But then you get to chapter 10, and you realize that the point has been all along to create and then reinforce faithful resilience. The author is telling the audience what they already know, but that which they need reminding in their season of suffering. Remember the king, the author is saying. The author is saying. Remember your story. Remember who the king is. Remember where you've come from. Remember to whom you belong. And persevere in the faith. And to remind them the gravity of the one called Jesus, the author uses some of the most striking language in the New Testament. Look at the opening lines of the book, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. The author says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So for the author, Jesus is God's final word. There were prophets before him, but now he has spoken through Jesus, the one through whom the universe was created. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. The author goes on to argue that Jesus' teaching is greater than the teaching delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus is greater than Moses himself, who led Israel through the wilderness. He's greater than Israel's priests down throughout their history. He's greater than the sacrificial system established to atone for sin because Jesus, unlike the sacrificial system, has dealt with sin once and for all. And the author uses these things that both they and their audience believe about Jesus to remind them and to warn them how foolish it would be to abandon the truth even when things get very hard. Now, turn just a few pages to the right to chapter 10. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, we're reminded of something essential to living under the authority of Jesus and realizing his teachings in our lives. Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 19. The author says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Listen to this, not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In the early weeks of 2020, when it was still very cold, and the sun set early in the evening. My wife, Abby, told me that she had just read about a viral threat that had affected a small province of China. We still don't know what happened. Maybe a bat bit something, and a person ate that something, and that person got sick, and that person breathed and coughed and sneezed on people and things, and people touched those things, and they got sick as well. And in the weeks that followed all over the world, things started breaking down. Now it seems as if several years were somehow compressed into those last four or five months. State-enforced quarantine convoluted by an avalanche of confusing vagaries brought social and professional lives to a strange stumbling halt. People lost jobs, people got sick, people died, people got really scared. And in the age of spin, the season of great near-universal hardship in which the world shared a horrible involuntary common ground, but, but a common ground nonetheless, we found ways to hate and fear and resent one another. Lines were drawn by politicians and for-profit news outlets. You had two choices. The choices were, at least as far as I can tell, be an extreme anti-scientist, right-wing religious fanatic who believes Bill Gates created coronavirus to you know, use a nefarious vaccine of his own design to control the population, or be a God-hating leftist warrior brainwashed by the liberal media desperate to keep the world in lockdown until the sun burns out. Those are the two choices. And whichever side you pick, you can pick one or the other, but you should be angry. You should be very angry all the time. You should be mad at the other side for pushing reopening. Or you should be mad at the other side for pushing masks. Or you should be mad at the news for siding with the other side or mad at the news for siding with the other side. 
Or you should be mad at someone for taking the virus too seriously or mad at someone for not taking the virus seriously enough. And just as this was all getting started, the season of the virus, the hysteria and the politicization of the pandemic, Van City Church shuttered its doors. We closed before they said we had to. We wanted to demonstrate utmost concern for those at risk in our community and beyond. We still do. The elders made the decision together, a decision not unlike other churches all over the world. Kind of, we were all forced there eventually. And it was, we still believe, not just what we had to do. It was the right thing to do. So we stopped the gathering. We stopped gathering around kitchen tables. And, and we began huddling around computer screens instead. We still are. Several people told me in those early weeks that just as we had done so much work to confront and deal with digital addiction, we were now forced before phones and laptops just for some sense of connection at all. So we had Zoom meetings and we made sermon videos every week and we took communion. I don't know about you guys, but we took communion with like water and peanuts when we had no bread or juice in our house. We prayed with other people online. We made more podcasts. We listened to worship playlists. Tonight, the season of the virus has obviously not come to an end. We have no idea, really, what's next. But thus far, my own experience of the pandemic has been relatively free of turbulence. Like everyone, I've been inconvenienced. I've badly wanted to go to the movies, or I've, I've certainly missed everyone. I've been aggravated by setbacks and complications like anyone else. But I have felt a pang in my heart at losing church. It was like Cam said, it has been years and years for me personally since I have not gone to a church consistently. I was discouraged and disheartened to start a new and virtual church from scratch, something I never wanted to do. Um, we were made to practice a mode of community that we've made no secret of dismissing as not really community at all. I felt grief, real grief, that my kids... We're not being led in worship every week by Dave or by Kevin or by Levi, that they weren't learning Bible stories alongside friends and playing games together. I felt grief, real grief at the loss of worship. Um, that was something that, again, I didn't realize how it was important to the weekly rhythm. Um, loss of communion of that precious sacred time in an old building with a few dozen people when for all our stumbling and getting it wrong, God sees fit to thin the veil between heaven and earth and make his ever-present closeness even more palpable, his ever-available voice more audible. But what could we do but embrace the resources at our disposal and pray the center would hold? The elders of Van City began fasting every week on Tuesday, praying that our family would endure this season together, that we'd somehow, despite everything, grow together rather than apart. And I watched something incredible happen as the long days waned on, the church continued to be the church. I was sent letters of encouragement. Someone knocked on my door one evening to deliver a gift from their community. I passed people from our church as I walked my neighborhood with my family, and they reassured me and encouraged me. And despite the imperfections and the setbacks, I began to see hope, which is a thing that's really difficult for me to do personally. Almost no one wants to do Zoom calls. And sure, some people let that get the best of them from time to time, but lots of people decided to push against their frustration and really try to be there. And I was reminded of the church's resolve, of the promise of Jesus himself, who said, I will build my church, not you, not me. Jesus will build the church, 
and the gates of hell will not overcome it. At the advent of the season of the virus, a few churches made headlines for refusing to postpone their gatherings or arguing for the necessity of such a thing, invoking the protection of God, climbing this imaginary hill to die on. It was embarrassing. Churches were touted as villains in the political war zone. Just this past Thursday, the New York Times ran a headline claiming, churches emerge as major source of coronavirus cases, which is a tad misleading because the article goes on to link some 600 cases out of 3 million to churches, somewhere to the tune of 0.02%, which doesn't seem like a major source to me, but what do I know? I'm not a journalist. So I doubt many sensible people would defend the churches that are now infamous for refusing state orders to quarantine. But all the infighting and villainizing and skewed data can obscure our ability to see something beautiful that's happening in the midst of something awful. That yes, we shut things down in order to care for others. Yes, we followed state orders. Yes, we're resuming gatherings at a fraction of what they were and with extreme precaution and weirdness. Who knows what will happen next? But through it all, the church of Jesus perseveres. He said it would, and it has, and it will. This, all this seems weird. The, the masks and the tape on the pews and staying six feet apart and the thermometer and the signs outside. And sure, in a lot of ways, it's all very futuristic and dystopian. But actually, this is part of the story. As far back as the first century, the church was made to face obstacles, reasons to give up, trials to deteriorate faithfulness. A virus isn't the same thing as like the political persecution we read about in the New Testament and throughout church history. But there's a dimension of this time with a very real component of spiritual warfare. In a broken world, torn apart by the evil one, a bat can bite an animal and a person can eat that animal and get sick and spread that sickness. And in the ensuing indifferent chaos, a small church in Washington closes its doors. But the church does not end. All of us realize that this isn't back to normal. We've been talking for months now about a day when we'll all be together and singing and hugging. Obviously, this isn't that. This is a, a movement in a direction, we hope. Not only that, but there are people who can't come back yet, and we miss them. We can't all be in one room at once. We miss that. We aren't free to hug and shake hands and sing without masks. And that's okay. We'll get there at some point. This, this strange small thing, is a gesture of resolve. Our brothers and sisters who can't be here yet but are streaming this online, Michael Dumont, I was just talking to him a second ago. Hi, you, Olivia, how are you? Watching this at home, that's a gesture of resolve. The draining Zoom meetings and the community get-togethers outside or six feet apart or split in half like ours is, the guys one night, the girls another night, all of that is a gesture of resilient faithfulness. I've seen it these last few months that in a time of fear and of pain and of suffering when the enemy seems to have some advantage, a foothold, a weakness through which to exploit us and break us down and move us away from another, we hold on. The author of Hebrews' words echoing out over centuries of the church, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. So that when circumstances beyond our control prevent us from doing what we've always done, we are obstinate in our refusal to abandon one another. If loving one another well means that we can't all meet around a dinner table for right now, we will find some other way. If loving one another well means we can't all be in one sanctuary, shoulder to shoulder all at once, watch us, we will find some other way. Rather than hold this evening and this setting up as some triumphant return to glory, I'd rather recognize two things this evening. The first is that we don't know what happens next. Will we do more of this, like this, for the next few weeks or months? Will we go back into lockdown and not be able to do this? Will we head into phase three or back into phase one? Will we ever make it to the elusive four that people talk about? I don't know. And we recognize that uncertainty. It's beyond our control. But the second thing we have to remember enables us to confront that uncertainty in stride, and that's this. Either way, the church carries on. Recognize this room and these faces and this time not as a sign that it's all over, but as a symbol that whatever comes next, we can find a way to be the church together. Recognize this room and these faces, remembering our brothers and sisters and children who can't be here yet as a symbol of protest against the evil one, protest against the self-serving political idolatry of the world. These weird protocols and small numbers and hand sanitizer represent our concern for one another, and that we're here at all is a gesture of defiance against the evil one. Again, he has failed to bring the church down. The gates of hell will not overcome it. When all this began, I was reading Philippians in the morning. God's Spirit spoke to me through the text, and I began to see us in it, our church and our story in it. Not in every little way, but I just saw shades of us in that story. And I decided to put the book to memory. So to end, I, w I just wanted to recite some of it to you. And as you hear these words inspired by God's Spirit, my encouragement is to take them in. Yes, it was written by someone else to someone else and in different circumstances, but we are connected to this story of a church that has been separated and is finding some way to be the church. We are part of this story. So you are allowed, even though it's written by someone else to someone else, to see yourself in it, to recognize our place in the story. If you're like, you can read along beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. If not, you can just sit there and listen to these words before we end. Don't know how this will strike you. I just know that in the weeks, previous weeks, I felt even from a couple of months ago that this was something to be read and heard the first time we got back together in a room. In Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul writes this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, be blameless and pure for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The former, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former do so out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or pure, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but will, be, will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ may be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for the joy and progress of your faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ may abound on account of me. In any event, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed and you will be saved. And that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you're going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility regard others better than yourself. Each of you should look to the interest, not only your own interest, but to the interests of the other. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the King is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the skies. You hold fast to the word of life. And I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the service and sacrifice coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's talking about dying, but those words to me resonated and made me think, whatever happens, whether life or death, we will find a way to follow Jesus together. Whatever happens, whether it's very easy or very difficult, we will find a way to follow the way of Jesus together. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.